January 24th, 2019. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's neuroscience podcast. I'm your host, Salma Qureshi. Our guest today is Jeff Golden. He is the Ramsey S. Cotran Professor of Pathology at Harvard Medical School. Hi, Jeff. Hello. He is a clinician scientist whose research program combines in vivo and in vitro technologies to investigate the transcriptional networks required for regulating neuronal migration in addition to many other things. So around the room, we've got Todd Troyer. Hello. We've got Jenny Shea. Hello. We've got Asif Maruf. Hi. And Charlie Wilson. Hi. There's a lot of places that we could start, but I wanted to start with this idea of, of mitochondrial metabolism. So we generally discuss mitochondrial metabolism as a sort of adult nervous system phenomenon or process, mostly in reference to oxidative stress and neurodegeneration, cell death, that kind of thing. But there's also a rich story about mitochondrial metabolism in the developing brain during neurogenesis differentiation, and you've shown neuronal migration. So in a very cool set of studies, you've defined how cortical interneurons are particularly vulnerable to energetic constraints during early migration, more so than, um, than projection neurons. So what's even more remarkable is that you're now leveraging that dichotomy as almost like an organizational principle by which to understand and dissect the diversity of clinical phenotypes produced by single gene mutations. So it's a big story. So by way of introduction, could you say something about kind of the emerging links or the history sort of between mitochondrial dysfunction, inner neurons, and neurodevelopmental dis disorders that kind of propelled some of this, this work? Sure. Um, so first of all, we kind of backed into this story. It's not one that we set out to look for. We recognized that there were a number of these genes that were involved in mitochondrial function. And I might add that with regard to mitochondrial function, we might want to talk about it. It's not just energetics. It's not just oxidative phosphorylation. It has to do with uh, calcium homeostasis, lipid um, movement, lipid raft exchange, uh, among organelles, uh, contacts between uh, mitochondria and other organelles in the nucleus that are involved in signaling. So this, the mitochondrial function is actually quite complex and more so than certainly I remember from learning it when I was an undergraduate. Um, but once we started looking, we, we had been studying uh, the role of other genes, particularly nuclear transcription factors, in brain development. And in doing that, we had kind of teased out that these interneurons had a very selective and specific function around the um, epilepsy phenotypes that we see in kids. And it was that recognition, along with the recognition that a significant number of kids with epilepsy and mitochondrial disorders also had the brain phenotype that was similar to these uh, nuclear mutations that really kind of connected the two for me and got me thinking about whether uh, there might be a relationship there, and that's when I started studying that phenomenon. So the, the, the mitochondria have more than one function, you pointed out, yeah. but, but the, the molecule that you're uh, altering on the mitochondrion that reproduced the functional change was one that's required for ATP synthesis. So we could say, well, mitochondria make ATP, but they also do all these other things. Yeah. But it seemed like maybe the ATP synthesis is connected somehow to all those other things. Can you? So that, that's a really interesting thing. And, and, and I've always thought that's not the case. Um, that was the easiest foray into studying the mitochondria for us, was to perturb the oxidative phosphorylation using 
um, the or perturb ATP production for the cell by per pharmacologically perturbing them. We had the cultures, we had the systems to do it. It was a really easy way for us to kind of just jump into the field. But what makes me think that that's not the case was the early work that we showed that the mitochondria move throughout the cell and the recognition in other areas of neuroscience, the need to move mitochondria to different parts independent of their ATP production. And so the last thing I showed, which is kind of this new territory we're exploring, is that we can disrupt the ability of the cells to move by disrupting the connectors to the molecular motors, the mitochondria to the molecular motors, like MIRA1 and MIRA2 and Milton. And we're seeing an oxidative phosphorylation we haven't tested it in our system. Other people have tested it in other systems, like cancer systems, using things like seahorse, and they've shown no difference in oxidative phosphorylation using these same constructs that we're using. We suspect that, that ATP production is, is exactly the same, but we're preventing the, the mitochondria from moving, and yet we see the same phenotypes. And so that's suggesting to me that it's more than just the ATP itself, and that there's other components to it. So uh, just bearing down on that a little bit, so you've seen this dichotomy between inner neurons and projection neurons in terms of the mitochondrial spatial dynamics within the right. neurons, which is what you just referred to. But as you and many others have shown, the fundamental process of migration is, is really different for these, for these two types of neurons. They come Correct. from different locations. Their behavior is very different. And it seems like some of at least the projection neurons, it's a really sort of straightforward radial migration. And these are the ones where you see sort of the leading edge of the mitochondria, whereas the others for the inner neurons tend to be more disorganized. So is that like an epiphenomenon of like sort of the constraints of the physical constraints of the system and it, it being sort of a simple unidirectional thing? Like which thing leads? Is it the mitochondrial assembly? Sure. So, so let me try and answer that with the studies we've done, which I didn't have time to present today. First of all, the radial migration is um, not only simpler, but it has a guide. It, it, they, these cells migrate along these radial glial fibers, and so there's, it, there's much more simplicity and direction to where they're going to go. Um, so I do think that there are maybe constraining, as you suggested, or some other things that, that uh, fundamentally distinguish the radially migrating versus the non-radially migrating cells. But the, the experiment that we did that I think gets to what you're talking about is we can selectively block either ATP production from mitochondria, oxidative phosphorylation, or glycolysis using 2-DPG, 2-deoxyglucose. Um, and when we do that, we can show that the migrating radial glial cells can function on just glycolysis alone and don't require any um, oxidative phosphorylation for them to be able to migrate normally. Whereas the migrating uh, interneurons cannot. They require ATP production from mitochondria and glycolysis alone is not sufficient for them to migrate. So I don't think that absolutely excludes or, or separates out this concept that there's a um, that there's some kind of constraining principle. It may be both, but we do know that it's not sufficient for one, and it is sufficient for and, and necessary for the other. 
So I have a, a kind of a simplistic kind of question or a way to frame this, and I, I don't know what, whether, it, I mean, it seems like one of the things that you could think about is you need, you need the energy, right? Yeah. Uh, and you need it in the right place. Yeah. So you could not have enough energy because you can't produce enough energy or you can't accumulate it in the right place. Yeah. And with radio, uh, you have a radial migration maybe you need to organize and so if you have an efficient uh, production mechanisms then you get enough because you get it all concentrated in the right place yeah uh, but if you're you know doing long range migration you, you have a harder the organizational problem is harder uh, but the energy constraints might be similar I don't so I think it's a little more complex than that I'm sure it is <laughs> uh, for radial cell migration the, the cell moves up uh, this radial glial fiber as we described and it it branches very little and it takes a single route up to there and it doesn't have a lot of requirement for other cellular function during that migration. In, in contrast, in radial cell migration, in non-radial, the interneuron migration requires extensive branching. It What happens when the cell migrates is that the nucleus gets, well, before the nucleus, the this MTOC that I talked about, the microtubular organizing center, moves out along with the Golgi out in front of the nucleus into this cytoplasmic, what's referred to as the cytoplasmic bleb. And then the nucleus gets pulled up to that um, cytoplasmic bleb through molecular motors. And actually, the genes that are involved in human disorders like um, LIS1 and double cortin are, are actually important for that migration of the nucleus. In the back, there's actually a, uh, I describe it kind of like a toothpaste, toothpaste effect where, you know, you squeeze the toothpaste. You actually squeeze the back of the cell. That's actually happening in a um, non-muscle myosin-2 ATP-dependent uh, process. And so what we see is that when that retraction of the trailing process that's ATP-dependent myosin, non-muscle myosin, that's when the mitochondria are moving back there to supply that those mitochondria to those to that cellular process while it's happening. And then they can go and they can be involved in the movement of the nucleus as it moves towards the, um, the uh, MTOC and that cytoplasmic bleb. And at other times, they're out the, you see the mitochondria going out to these branch points where these, the, the leading process is actually sending out these extensive arborization. And so that whole process, I think, is exactly what you say is that you need to get enough energy in the cell, but I think you have to actually move it around because the, the migration, the mechanics of interneuron migration is actually much more complex and we know about these different processes that happen in these different places. So one of the things you also showed is that there's a, an energy dependence of the directionality component as well as the, the sort of rate of proliferation, right? Yeah. And so that directionality part I'm assuming you have correlated to sort of uh, the, these, these uh, mitochondrial or microtubule assembly operations and what sorts of anchoring proteins and, or the machinery required to do yeah. those kinds of things. And those things, you would assume, would be energetically expensive, right? Which right. is why it would be dependent on. So, so we haven't done that yet. This is something that we're still exploring, and I'd like to understand that and know that. And it kind of gets at some of the experiments we're, we're trying now. But again, I don't think it's just ATP production because when we block, that when we knock down the Miro one, we still get that phenotype. Now we actually haven't looked to see if the if there is a change in where the uh, um, 
MTOCs are located, I just assume, because the cells are turning around and going backwards and sending out long trailing processes. But So I assume that's what's happening, but I, I actually don't know that. So you mentioned during your talk that, you know, for some of these intractable childhood epilepsies that people have been, be knowing that metabolism is linked, they've been trying to treat some of these children yeah. um, with, like, shift their metabolism, yeah. giving them different diet or nutritional supplements, yeah. but they've seen mixed results. So yeah. I'm wondering, do you, do you think that based on what we're talking about, the role of mitochondria and that development... Is there a window of time that we can intervene or? So this is my fantasy. I don't think it's a reality. It's like living in Golden's world. Um, and that is that if we could identify what the metabolic derangements are at the time in, in during development, because there's these windows of development where this has to occur, then ostensibly we could think about how to repair that energy deficit at, or that mitochondrial localization deficit at that time. And, and I use as the example um, what Jeff Nobles down at Baylor has done with this, um, this particular estrogen that he found that actually if you give it to these mice, and there's a window, there's only a certain time frame that he can give them these, that, that, um, that, that estrogen to the, to the mom and you actually you dramatically reduce the number of seizures. It doesn't completely eliminate, but you dramatically improve it. And I think that if we could identify what those are, and I was actually talking to the students here a little bit earlier about this, the, the burden on the individual, but more importantly the family, for the epilepsy in these is so severe that most of the families I've talked to, if you could just, even though you, you're not going to change the intellectual disability, you're not going to change some of the other things, if you could get rid of the seizures, they would be eternally grateful. It would be so valuable to them and, and their lives and the stresses, the family stresses that these bring on. And I think if we could do something about that, it would be incredible. And, and I think there may be opportunities, but again, this is Golden's world. This is not reality today. But that's what we're working to think about. Some of the coolest part of this, from uh, just from the scientific perspective, not obviously the important clinical perspective, is that this idea of dissecting the cast of characters and the different sort of transcriptional networks and, and the points of intersection between them along the lines of cell type and like what, how these cells are having to behave in early development is really kind of cool because uh, I'm not a developmental neuroscientist, but it just sort of seems like, well, you know, at this point in development, a bunch of things go on and then they go off and then a bunch of other things go on and go off and then later on those same things that were on before come yeah, on and then sure. you suddenly you have pattern, uh, a pattern nervous system. So this is really looking at some of the spatial complexity and just fundamental things like what is it that causes cell motility? I mean, what are the, the sort of constraints on how things move? And, and how is that defined by transcription factors and how what might interact with other things? So, I mean, how close are we to building that map of, like, <laughs> the spatial and temporal map of, like, what's happening at every point in every cell type in the nervous system? And is that even a goal? Because that seems to be a huge yeah. mystery in, it, in, in a lot of ways, right? 
I think there's a lot of things that are known and there's a lot of things we don't know. A lot of the things we know have to do with the setting up of um, gradients of different signaling molecules that help us establish early patterning in the nervous system. I mean, it, it starts with uh, even at gastrulation, setting up what's going to be anterior, what's going to be posterior, how you, even the node and setting up the node and where it's going to be, and then setting up left-right symmetry, setting up anterior, posterior, dorsal, ventral. You know, dorsal, ventral, and the spinal cord work from many people, predominantly from the Jessel lab, showing that uh, there's, you know, the, the ventral is going to be where the motor neurons and the specific inner neurons, the dorsal are going to become the sensory and inner neurons. And it, all of this is set up by these gradients of signaling molecules that then turn on, based on the level of expression of these signaling molecules, different transcription factors. And different sets of transcription factors either interact with each other or oppose each other. And those set up the specific boundaries so you can define where motor neurons are actually going to be in the spinal cord. And then moving up into the you know, hindbrain and then the forebrain and then the hindbrain, the rhombomeres and setting up all those with the, um, with the retinoic acids and all of those. And then going into the forebrain and all the work that John Rubenstein and others have done has really enlightened us on how the brain is organized. But coming back to your point, we really do understand it at a pretty gross level at this point. Getting, getting down to why does a, a cell you know, exit the cell cycle and start migrating and how does it know what course to take and what to differentiate to, there's a lot of information around that, but we still are, there's still a lot to learn. Uh, I think some of the recent work from uh, Gord Fischel and others have begun, at least with the interneurons, to identify specific regions in the ventricular zone that define different, you know, parvalbumin versus somatostat and other types of interneuron subtypes. And even um, uh, getting at a, at a much more granular level which transcriptional pathways are involved with the recent work that's going on around single cell sequencing uh, that's been happening and some exciting things. But putting that all together, I think we're still a ways off. I don't know if that answered your question or. Well, I think it seems the granularity is, is the issue, right? Yeah. I think the work that you're doing really kind of brings a, a mechanics level question to it in terms of cytoskeleton and how are these cells transducing these gradients that they're encountering and into actual movement, into physical forces and things, right? I mean, it, 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 gets, it starts getting to some of those questions, which we don't. So really I almost see us, you know, coming together from two different ends. Someone who's, you know, single cell sequencing all the interneurons and kind of understanding these pathways and, and we're down looking at one single pathway and one single cell and how it moves and what it does and, and eventually those have to come together to understand it all. I think that's probably what needs to happen. Yeah, and for some of that work it takes, like I just came back from a talk by Ed Lean from oh, the yeah. Allen Brain Allen Institute Brain, yeah. and they they have an entire institute and a lot of resources to essentially categorize all of these different interneuron cell types in humans and non-human primates. So it, I think you're right. We really just don't have just all the, the road mapped out at this point. Yeah. So do we have, in terms of migration, uh, I mean, do you see different classes of, of interneurons in terms of the way that they migrate? Or, or is it you know at that point at the at the level that you're studying them, are there's just interneurons migrating a long way? 
Yeah, that's I mean, a really interesting question. Um, the answer is probably an I don't know. And the reason is that we do see different um, migration tracks taken and different um, patterns of migration. So some cells tend to branch more. Some cells tend to do different things. But we don't know what they ultimately become. And the problem is that a lot of the the factors that we would want to use to see what they become, for example, parvalbumin is a great example. It doesn't come on until well after the cells migrated and ended up. So knowing which cell is going to become a parvalbumin cell when it's migrating so we can see it is a really challenging problem. I don't know how to quite solve that. So there's um, it, there's kind of a... So you know already. I, I think they probably do. I mean, we know that Cells from the caudal ganglionic eminence, so, so we've, we're mostly talking about the medial ganglionic eminence, but really cortical interneurons come from two main uh, ventral eminences, the caudal and the medial. And they do give rise to slightly different populations of interneurons. They have slightly different uh, distributions in the cortex, both anterior, posterior, but also on a laminar uh, level. So they need to go somewhere and differentiate, and they probably know that pretty early on. It's just hard to identify them when they're starting out that that's what they're going to do and be and where they're going to end up. It's it's a little simpler for radial migrating cells because we can actually birth date them and know almost exactly where they're going to go. We're pretty close. You use the word metabolomics. I'm always intrigued by omics words. So can you can you say something about what what does that encompass? How do I, what does that mean? Yeah. So metabolomics is probably a. Um, little bit of a garbage basket term used in clinical medicine uh, more than anywhere else. And it really has to do with measuring um, all the small molecules that are um, in blood, serum, CSF, wherever you're measuring it, but looking at, um, you know, ATPs and metabolites and all the different small molecules, mostly done by mass spec, where we can look at, an in, you know, everything that happens in metabolism. Uh, looking at uh, lactic pathways, uh, lipid pathways, and, and the metabolites that come from them and the, the byproducts of them. And we can, we can identify those, and that becomes what is known as the metabolome or everything that's involved, just like the genome. People are using this more and more. You know, the genome is everything in the, you know, all our genes. Um, people now talk about an exposome, everything you're exposed to. Um, it, this is in clinical medicine as we start to do it. The value of it, and I, and I do think there's a value in this, in thinking about this this way, because as we start looking at um, precision medicine and how to really interrogate large data, if we don't have sufficient data sets, it actually weakens the interpretation of the information. So as an example, you can take two different melanomas, and I can sequence those two melanomas, and I can tell you which one of them was due to sun exposure, and I can tell you which one was due to a genetic defect, a specific genetic defect. And it's very easy. The, the, it's, it's a pattern of the mutations that occur. There's a bunch of them in sun exposure, and most of the genetic ones are going to be something like a BRAF mutation, a V600E mutation. And so having all the information of sun exposure and non-sun exposure and being able to correlate that allowed us to tease that out, and those two melanomas are going to be treated slightly differently now. 
So there is a value to being able to collect and use this data in clinical care. Along those same lines, I wanted to ask a question about <clears throat> uh, relating ge genetic defects to pathological phenotypes. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, like basically how the ARX mutation results in a migration deficit, which then causes seizures or leads to seizures. So, Yeah, so I, I tried to really... Um, clarify this a little bit in saying that I don't think ARX does any one thing that leads to seizures or something else in the brain. Um, it was only when we separated out and dissected out that there is a, if we knocked ARX out only from the inner neurons from, and separated that from the projection neurons, that we saw one had a migration defect and one didn't. But there's still a defect in ARX in the projection neurons. It just happened to be a proliferation defect. And I'm sure there's others that we haven't even figured out yet. And my colleague, Eric Marsh, who, who I had mentioned, who's at CHA, he's still doing these studies where he's now using a uh, parvalbumin-specific CRE to do a late knockout of ARX, because we know ARX is expressed in the mature interneurons. And it must have a role there, and it's not a migration role. So I think all of these genes have many, many different roles. And um, to ascribe epilepsy to migration, I think, would be a narrow, to me, a narrow way of looking at that because there's, it's probably a combination of multiple things that are actually the pathogenesis of that. And so we need to think about how to, in my simple way of thinking about it is, I want to try and first separate it all out, understand it each at, an, at a single level, you know, at a, a single thing that I can experimentally manipulate and understand it, and then start putting it back together to see how do I understand the whole picture. And so that's how I've kind of thought about doing the, kind of in the long term, thinking about these experiments. A regression kind of to a, the, 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 a single function, if I can, and then adding those single functions back together to be able to understand how it affects the whole organism. And I think that's really how, that's one way. I'm sure there's other ways, but that's one way we will get at understanding how a mutation can lead to so many different um, deficits or abnormalities. There's also the possibility that epilepsy is not just in the brain. What do you well, mean by so, that? <laughs> I, I, I think, so when, I'm, I, so when I'm talking to somebody who's studying like a systems neuroscience approach, one, one, somebody explained to me that it's like, I think you and I like to study, like you said, the brain, taking the, re, reduce it to the, to simple and then understand the parts and put it back together. So yeah. it would be like, if you want to understand how a bird works, you dissect the bird and then you understand all the parts. But you'd never know if you just studied the bird and every, you knew everything about it. Yeah. You never know that if you, that if you birds fly together and they fly in a you know in this pattern. Yeah. And that's really how they behave. Yeah. And so I'm wondering if something like epilepsy or something like autism, if it's if we also should consider, um, you know, a systems approach. Yeah. No. I, 
I, I, I'd welcome what other people think. <laughs> I certainly think that for things like autism and other disorders that that makes a lot of sense. I think it's hard for me to understand how epilepsy is anywhere other than in the brain, but maybe I'm thinking too narrowly. Well, some of it is like, uh, I think, uh, when you say de development, right? So if you don't develop properly, then the it just that the a circuit could be malformed and then uh, then uh, misbehave. Yeah. So is it the the migration that causes the misbehaving, or is just it's not right? So then it misbehaves. So yeah, there's a link. So if you have a broader systems approach, this stresses, you know, you have things like stress or oxidation, all kinds of yeah. things pressure systems and then they break differently according to different stressors hmm. and so then is the outside system is it really just caught when you say caused by the outside yeah. system and when you have complicated systems different aspects react differently to different patterns of outside influences yeah no i and, that makes sense right so we could connect it but it's still it depends on what you mean by causality that the fundamental can you get at the fundamental deficit? And that's what you talk about, picking apart different pieces. So, of course, a gene is going to affect multiple processes, multiple pathologies, depend on multiple processes going wrong, and anything that goes wrong can screw you up in particular <laughs> ways. And so it gets to be a complicated a complicated web. Um, but that doesn't mean it's, it's not useful to think about. I, yeah. I mean, another, I read a, we had it. We talked about a paper that was published in Science or Cell, but I forgot the authors. But it was about um, it was about epilepsy and and trying to explain how the ketogenic diet is. Oh working. yeah, yeah, yeah. And it turns out it's a gut bacteria that is producing um, the ketogenic effect. Yeah. And that they could just rescue the epilepsy by just recapitulating the bacteria products. Yeah. It was mind-blowing. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. I mean, the microbiome is uh, actually being studied extensively around particularly multiple sclerosis, but other neurodegenerative diseases as well, because the modulation of the microbiome will affect your immune system. And the immune system is clearly involved with multiple sclerosis, but as I was talking to someone today, I forget who, oh, maybe it was George Perry, we, we were talking about the now the role of the immune system in Alzheimer's and other neurodegenerative diseases, particularly through the microglia, has become kind of a, I wouldn't call it a fad, it's become a really important part, study, area of study. So um, no question that, that those systems can, can uh, have an impact on them, that they can... Uh, alter them, but in the end, I guess I still think of epilepsy as being and arising in the brain, having to be in the brain. But yeah, those other systems could affect it, and mm -hmm. that's what I think what you're saying, and I think that makes sense. So in some of your pictures, maybe these weren't human. They might have been in mouse models or something. There was, there were animals that basically had no inner neurons in their right places at all. The like there's a piece of cortex where the inner neurons have not migrated into yeah. position at all. Uh, what's happening in that cortex? Why, why it isn't seizing 100% of the time? So that's a time to, so those are the animal studies, the mice. Uh -huh. And what happens is that eventually they do get up there. They get up there very late. Uh -huh. 
and they get up there, and, and my way of thinking about it is that they, they are there at the wrong time to form a normal circuit. So they still form some of these circuits, uh-huh. but they do it at, the, at a time when it doesn't form a normal circuit. Um, if we look in the adult mice that survive, we do see deficits of um, inner neurons, and we, we actually um, published this about a year and a half ago, um, that there are subtypes of inner neurons that are even more affected than, some more affected than others, um, like parvalbumin are more affected than somatostatin. But the, the effect is um, such that the, there's decreased numbers, but there are inner neurons that eventually get up there. And, and what's interesting is that's not too dissimilar from many other disorders. It, the one I first started studying when I started studying human disorders was LIS1. The LIS1 gene is, uh, it also causes Liz encephaly. It was the first one to be described. Um, that's where it got its name, Liz encephaly, uh, LIS. And um, it, it's actually, it interacts with um, proteins that are involved in uh, the molecular motors, dynein in particular, through a variety of different things. It's signaled through the CDK5 pathway. And um, it prevents that movement of the nucleus up to that MTOC. The result is that the cells still migrate. They just migrate too slowly. And so they don't get to where they're supposed to be in the right time, and they end up stuck in the wrong places. And so you get this abnormal, thick... uh, cortex both in the mouse and in the human. And so it's not a failure to migrate, but I showed it at a time when it's most dramatic. And later you'll see those cells migrating up. They just do so slowly and at the wrong time. So a lot of the time epilepsy is just uh, represented as uh, imbalance between excitation yeah. and inhibition. Mm. And that's just the way we are. We, we don't have very many analogies to use. We know about levers. And so balance, and so we turn everything into a lever. Yeah. We know about wheels. We know about fire. Well, we don't really know much about fire. <laughs> so we, everything is either a lever or a wheel, pretty much. So, but if, um, but if there's enough inhibition, but it's happening at the wrong time or in the wrong cell or forming a circuit that's not the the right circuit, um, this could produce the kinds of phenotypes that we see and would be very confusing for us because we don't know, we just know how much inhibition is there, how much excitation is there. We don't understand whether it's in the right place at the right time or not. Uh, so you see, you have these uh, animals, right, to have a bunch of inhibition. It's just not at the right place. It's not at the That's right That's my time. interpretation. And, and we have, I think, just some circumstantial data that that's true. So when these cells don't get to their natural, normal destination, are they still forming synapses? Because yep. sort of the, the ultrastructure is, is that sort of a separate process that is then invoked when they land wherever they end up landing, and then that's sort of a different machinery that then right. has to actually form these functional connections. Because it's ultimately all about the functional connections, right? right? And so we know they form connections. We can, you know, look at um, PSD95 and other components of the synapse, and we know they form synapses. We know they form... But are they normal? Are they with the right cells? Do they function normally? That we don't know, and, and that's not a. Those aren't questions that my lab is one that I can. These test. are two so those, distinct processes, the, as, as yeah, we Yeah, that say would be yeah. something. And I think Eric Marsh would like to get at some of that, and um, I think that you know there's probably people out there that can do that, certainly far better than I could ever do it. 
there's still a lot of people working just figuring out what different kinds of internet are supposed to be connecting with. Mm. There's that giant cottage industry of people just finding out who's connected to who in the cortex. That's right, mm -hmm. and the difference and between a perfect Martinotti yeah. cell and a chandelier cell yeah. and a bipolar and all Three different things. kinds of Martinotti cells. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's part of those 50 or more different interneuron yeah. subtypes in the cortex. Yeah, so that, that was kind of my question. These are both processes of landing in the right spot and then yeah. communicating and landing in the right spot again at yeah. a different scale, right? So, um, yeah, I've, I've never really appreciated how how many similarities or differences there are in the mechanics and the, the kind of transcriptional cast of characters that would determine that. But I guess we just that's just a lot of unknown. The number of <laughs> permutations of possible yeah. problems is infinite. Rad, yeah. Um, okay, well, thank you for joining. I think we're out of time, so we'll go on and on and on. But thank you for joining us, Jeff Golden. Thank you for having me. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Mm -hmm.